Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday. I'm going to do something a little bit different. Instead of a typical yard site biography, I want to speak about the fact that uh, two days ago, I think, was, or three days ago, was Chav uh, Sivan, a uh, famous date in Jewish calendar, which is perhaps not so famous. So give me a minute to make it famous. The 20th of Sivan is a uh, tragic mm-hmm. day in the Jewish calendar by, um, by, our standards of history. Uh, many, many years ago, but what, before I was married, I was once on a date somewhere, and I was trying to find a girl, and I ended up uh, somewhere in Brooklyn. Maybe it was Williamsburg. I can't remember. Somewhere. And it was like Mincha time. I mean, I'm going a long time ago. And I couldn't find where Mincha was, perhaps. Or maybe I was stumbled or I lost. That could happen also to somebody from Baltimore on a date in New York. And the long and the short of it is, I walked into this building, turned it, it was a synagogue. It was like, you know, I believe one in the afternoon, two in the afternoon, something like that. Maybe 11 in the morning. The place was mobbed from top to bottom, a bunch of Hasidic looking types. The whole shul was super packed, and they're dominating away like it was Yom Kippur and screaming and carrying on and so on and so forth. And I just was completely perplexed, like, what is going on? Make a long story short, they were doing chafsib on the slichas. Some groups still do that. And I was like blown away. Wow. And I originally thought it was Oberlander's Wien, but I think now I was mistaken. It was Hasidic. So let me explain. On the 20th of Sibin, about a thousand years ago, in the time of Rabbeinu Tom in 1171, it was one of the very first blood libel cases where Jews were accused of killing a kid and using the blood for matzah and that sort of thing which is very well known. I did a, a, a lecture series on it a couple years ago. I think they put it up online, or they will one of these days. And it was called Killing Jews for Something They Did Not Do. It was like five or six lectures. I think I did in the summer, four or five years ago. So if you Google around, if you're interested, uh, you can find it. If not, sooner or later, they'll put it up on these podcasts, the people in charge of that. Anyhow, um, in the 1100s and not before, really, it started to be that Jews were subject to certain accusations that they murdered kids, murdered Christians for the purpose of using their blood. Uh, I know it's weird, it's crazy, but not to them. It was the Middle Ages, and historians have really written a lot on the subject, what they call the blood libel. The most interesting to my mind was a Canadian historian named Gavin Langmuir, who wasn't Jewish. One was not Jewish, and he was fascinated by this as a Geisha historian because he said, here's an interesting case of chimericals, uh, anti-Semitism, which means that you're ascribing to the Jews repeatedly an act that's never been seen. Because you know, and I know, I have to tell you, it's never happened anywhere. The Jews killed somebody, used blood for a matzah. There's no blood, no matzah. So what is that? You see, what he was saying was, this historian, Bishlema, if you're talking about ascribing to a group, 
the activities of a few. So that's also wrong, and it's prejudice and anti-Semitism, etc., etc., etc. For example, if two guys don't get the measles, you can't blame me. If Rabashkin did, if, if did something wrong, don't blame me, because he did and I didn't do it. So then you say, well, it's a long, unfortunate history of anti-Semitism, that if you, you know, uh, what do you call it? One person, two persons did it individually. This is why we've always had trouble with trying to maintain collective responsibility in Jewish history, because a few people can get the whole group in trouble. If you look in the Shulchan Aruch, there are more Paskins. If you know some crook, you can and should tell them over to the cops, contrary to what you hear, because they can endanger the rest of the Jewish community. It's a, a long series of that. So if you told me that they ascribed in the Middle Ages or afterwards that some Jews, you know, uh, stole money or some Jews uh, counterfeited or some Jews did this or some Jews did that, I still say, listen, you don't say one Christian did it and they blame all the Christians, so why should it be one Jew did it and they blame all the Jews? That's one type of anti-Semitism. But here, no one in history ever killed a, <laughs> a, a, a kid or anybody to use blood for matzo. We all know that's ridiculous. So how could it be that this had so much legs and it spread and was seen over and over again and still believed in many parts of the world today, including the United States of America? There was a blood libel case in uh, upstate New York in the 1920s, believe it or not, and there are others. So that's what that is. In 1171... There was a certain incident in France, in Blois, that's B-L-O-I-S, so you would say Blois, but it's Blois, and uh, there's a story involved in it, in which a Jew threw some leather somewhere in a river, and a guy thought he was, was nearby, thought it was a body, dead body, and he came back and told his master that the Jews had murdered a boy. And they worked it up in their heads that they murdered him on a ritual basis to use the blood for something or other. And it's a gun said this is really a, a story like a movie. I'm I'm serious. I'm not saying it to be so funny. The Jewish guy's name was Yitzhak ben Eliezer. And to make a long story short, he went to the local duke or Count Theobald of Blois. And this guy, Theobald, this is Mamisha Sopapro, was married but his wife was ugly. The most powerful Jewish lady in that small community, Pulcinella is her name. Pulcinella in Latin means uh, beautiful, okay? Uh, her name might have been Yaffa, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, uh, she was the richest uh, Jew, because women in France, this is a whole other schmooze, I don't have time to do this now. Women in France in the time of Rashi and Tosis occupied a very important economic role in Jewish society, more than today, and uh, there was an upgrade in the social standing and even the legal standing of the Jewish woman, the Jewish female in Ashkenaz in France and Germany in the 10, 11, and 1200s, as a result of their very uh, uh, pronounced economic pro uh, prominence. So to use plain English, a lot of guys were sitting and learning and that kind of stuff, and uh, the wife was running a, a whole empire, a commercial empire, you know, with caravans and import and export, all the rest of it. And this Pulcinella seems to have been like that, and she was a money lender. And by the time it's all over... Uh, the local count chose to believe the story. He arrested all the Jews in town. Uh, there was no proof. I want to make one thing very clear here, obviously. There was no dead body. <laughs> it, by the way, there could be a dead body. He just didn't do it. There was no dead body. Nobody was missing. But it's France in 1100, so who knows? Maybe somebody from another town, they talk, whatever. And uh, there was one, a grand total of one witness. Okay? And uh, in order to tell 
whether he's telling the truth, how can you do that? There was no cross-examination. So they did the medieval style, which is trial by God. So uh, trial by ordeal, they used to call it. And the trial by ordeal is an old, old kind of uh, judicial procedure, which the Torah rejects. One of my favorite topics when they talk about biblical criticism and, you know, the Hammurabi Code of King Hammurabi, which predates the Bible, and we have records of whole law systems, some which sound like from the Chumash, before Abraham. Uh, if you're interested in this, you get the old Hertz Chumash. probably don't even know what I'm talking about. But anyway, uh, in the Hammurabi Code, they have the laws of Sota. What is the laws of Sota? If a guy suspects his wife, hear me out, a guy suspects his wife, and uh, carrying on with someone else, he gets two witnesses, and he does Kinu Yonstira. He warns her in front of the other, Altistrian Plony, stay from the guy. And then she continues to act in a suspicious way, and she is secluding herself in one place or another with the accused. And then in that point, we, we do the water ceremony called the Sota. Well, Amurabi calls it something else. What is the water ceremony? Listen to this. You take the woman, you tie her up in a sack, you throw her in the bottom of the river. If she comes up alive, she was innocent. <laughs> Ain't exactly mm-hmm. the Sota story that you find in the Chumash, right? So, whatever the case is, it turns out that the uh, trial by ordeal in 1171 was you put a guy in, in a river in a boat that was filled with water, and if the boat doesn't sink, that's a sign Minash Shemayim that the guy's telling the truth. And so he accused all these Jews of being in a big plot to, uh, you know, murder the, uh, the kid or whoever it, was, whoever it was that was killed. And by the time it's all over, you know, there was some talk about bribing the guy, paying him off, and this and that, which also would be an outrage because he didn't do anything. But uh, uh, the majority of the Jews at the town or something like that is, I think all the Jews of Blah, which was like 30, 35 people, uh, were then burned at the stake. Well, they were actually put in a house, and then the house burned down, which is like the Nazis did in some of these movies in 1940. So the Nazis in the 40s was a reversion to the medieval style. And uh, there's a whole bunch of stories that some of the people, some of the Jews got out and uh, grabbed some Christians and tried to bring them in. You get burned too. But uh, then they shot them and killed the Jews uh, so the Christians were able to get away. Uh, I want to make one thing very clear. And this is the fascinating part of the story. Um, And that is had the Jews agreed to convert to Christianity, their lives would have been spared. So all these people would rather be burned alive. Think think about that. Burned mm-hmm. alive. Mm-hmm. Rather than give in. Mm-hmm. And there were efforts on the part of nearby Jewish communities to raise money and try to do something about it. But nothing worked. Okay? Nothing worked. They tried to get the King of France involved, Louis VII. But nothing worked. And... By the way, the king said, I don't believe the story. Right? I don't believe the story. But it wasn't enough to, to block the local, uh, what shall I say, uh, you know, account from doing whatever the heck he wanted to do. The story is that as, they, as the Jews burned alive, they recited Oleno. Oleno It's that whole thing of what we call Oleno. And according to many, that is the origin of the Oleno prayer being part of our daily davening. That spread from that incident when her, Jews heard about this, that these people died literally al Hashem. The reason I say al Hashem, aside from the fact it's a lie, 
It also means that um, it means that they could have taken the easy way out and converted. And since they didn't, that's a Kedush Hashem. Uh, and, you know, therefore they're high, very high Madrega. And this made such an impact on the Jewish communities that that prayer, Olenu, began to be included, as you and I know, at the end of the davening, as we do, elders insert in the middle of the davening, and so on and so forth. So look what a big bang that left. This was called the Kedoshe Blois. And the big rabbi in France at that time was the Tan, shortly before he died. And he was so uh, moved by all this that he composed Kinos, and he said it should be a fast day, and all that sort of thing. And since Rabbeinu Tom was the big person in France, in Ashkenaz, so this was honored for a long time. And the Jewish community, uh, you know, used to say, it was like one of those days where you where you have a slichos, and extra davening, and fasting, and all that sort of thing that goes along with this. Um, now, and the woman, of course, also was burned. You, you understand that. So all I can say is it left a powerful impact, but not for that long, because when something's not in the Gemara, it's not really super grounded, a generation or two go by and people keep it up. And then they don't, because I'm telling you a story you never heard of. So already 100 years later, it was already old, old news. The sad thing is that you switch forward to 1648 and 1649. In Poland, when they had the Kazakh massacres, we call the Chmelnitsky Masters, the in which many towns in Poland, this was the golden age of the Jews of Poland, I mentioned a number of times. Well, guess what, baby? This was the end of the golden age of Jews in Poland. The Gzeres was a terrible blow, in which tens of thousands of Jews, maybe 100,000, were butchered by the uh, Ukrainians, by the Cossacks, in all kind of contexts. And... Uh, this town fell on this day, and that town fell on that day. A survivor wrote a book that became a, a classic of Jewish historiography called Yevain Metzula, from the word Yavan. Uh, you know, Tavati Bivain Metzula, there's a Pasuk that you get in Tehillim. And therefore it means deep mud, but it really means deep in the Greeks, and the Greeks would be the Greek Orthodox Cossacks. The Ukrainians are Greek Orthodox, the, the um, Polish are, are uh, Roman Catholic. The Jews were on the side of the Poles, because the Poles are the ones that brought them in, the Polish landlords. And use the Jews as business agents. Well, the classic case where the Jews in the middle. There's a terrible hatred between the Bulls and the Jews, and the Jews are in the middle trying to make a living. And without going into a whole explanation of the Xeris Tachbatat, which I have done in a lecture series, and again, I'm sure one of these days it'll be up on the podcast, or if you go to the website, I think we have the videos of it. Uh, it was like six talks uh, a number of years ago. These are all, unfortunately, classics of uh, Jewish history. Yevain Metzula is a safer, the Mishnah Bura says, even though I don't agree that people can read history on Shabbos, but Yevain Metzula you can definitely read any time. It was a very firm book. And he goes through, in very simple language, what happened to the Jews in this locality and what happened to Jews in that locality, and, and usually it's massacres and tortures and burnings, and I, I'm not going to get you upset by telling you some of the details that the Cossacks perpetrated. Uh, they were very savage. Now, uh, one of the places that fell was Nemirov, a city, had a Jewish community, and uh, had some Khashoggi people there, and the Kazakhs around the city, and the Poles and the Jews combined to shoot back, and so you had a major siege. They made a movie, by the way, Poland made a movie of this, 
eh, 20 years ago, something like that, called uh, Fire and Sword. I forget how you say it in Polish. Fire and Sword. And it's like they're going with the wind of Poland by Joseph Sienkiewicz, who won the Nobel Prize in 1906. And uh, this movie is pretty, uh, I mean, it's a novel. You understand? It's like Gone with the Wind is a novel about Sherman's invasion of Georgia. This is a novel about Khmelnytsky's uprising. But they show a constant business of the siege of a town with the bloody attacks mm-hmm. back and forth. And that really did happen to the Jews in many places, including Nemirov. I believe in the end, the Poles betrayed the Jews, handed them over to the Cossacks, and the Cossacks killed the Poles anyway. I think that's how it happened. And it's highly detailed about how the Jews ran away to the cemetery. And they didn't really, especially the older people, couldn't fight back because they were just butchered by the Cossacks. Although I want to make clear once again, anybody who converted his life was spared. So all these tens of thousands of Jews who uh, were killed and tortured could have saved themselves. So they're all Kedoshim. It's not like Hitler where he had no choice. They had a choice and they could have saved their lives and they did not choose to do that. And therefore they all died al Kedoshim. Mamish. Well, my friends, in those days, people were firmer than we are now. So if there was a Holocaust, they didn't just say, well, there was historical causality. They say God must have done it. So they're trying to figure out why did God do it. So they say, well, because of two reasons, talking and show. Believe it or not, there was talking and show back then, and corrupt rabbis. So we still have the problem of talking and show now, and perhaps we still have the problem with some corrupt rabbis. But that's what they assigned it to in a famous meeting after the massacres were over. And one of the things they did was, they say, we have to have a Yom HaShoah. It can't be that a terrible Holocaust like this hit the Jews of Poland, and we shouldn't commemorate it. But on the other hand, you're not supposed to add new days. Uh, we have enough problems already. Uh, and some say, just do it on Tisha B'Av. In other words, the same argument that happened after the Holocaust in 1945, same arguments were rehearsed in 1650 or so. And what they ended up doing over there in a very firm type of way was to say, listen, the people were killed all through the calendar year, but one of the times was Chav Sivan. It so happens the Rabbeinu Tom ordained Chav Sivan as a national mourning day, at least for the Ashkenazi Jews in France. And Rabbeinu Tom's a biggie, so it's not in the Gemara, but Rabbeinu Tom's like a major, major, major person. And if he said to make it a special day, then it's not an unfroom thing to do. And based on the precedent of Rabbeinu Tom, they were Kovea, formally, that the 20th of Sibon should be the day you mourn the death of the thousands of Jews that were killed in the Kazakh massacre. So that's two so far. It's the Kadoshe Blah of 1171, and it's the victims of the Kazakh massacres of 1648 and 1649, both of which were assigned the same Yom HaShoah day of the 20th of Sibon, and Slichos were composed, and extra davening was composed, and, uh, you know, the Shach, who lived through this stuff, the famous Shach on the Shulchan Aruch, wrote a book called Miguel Sofa, where it's a, like a poem where he describes the horrible tortures. Like I said, I just don't feel like making you throw up at the moment, but there's a lot of horrible tortures that went along there and became part of the Jewish psyche for a number of generations. Uh, and then, once again, it kind of fell, I think, into desuetude. You know, you have too many people to have Sivan. The third time was after the war in Hungary. The Hungarians, Hungary was a country that was allied to Hitler. So ironically, that was good for the Jews in the following sense. The German army wasn't occupying Hungary because they were an ally. If you know anything at all about the Holocaust, where the German army was located, it was like total killing of the Jews. Where the German army was not located, Gitzach and Eitzah. You know, it was terrible, it was hard, but they didn't round everybody up and kill them. 
and uh, Hungary in 1939 to 44, in that sense, had it good. If you lived in Budapest, times were hard, but nobody arrested you. They didn't send you to Auschwitz, you know, that sort of thing. You could live a life. And, in fact, the Hungarian Jews thought they ducked a bolt. They thought that they escaped the Holocaust. The Romanian Jews, by the way, actually did escape the Holocaust. But in March of 44, for certain reasons, Hitler occupied Hungary, and then the Hungarian Jews were up the creek. And uh, it took them a couple of weeks to organize the Holocaust in Hungary. So if they came in in March, around May, you know, around Schwarz time or whatever, that's when the Germans started this very efficient uh, system of just, you know, all the Jews rounded up in the ghettos and then taken from the ghettos by train to Auschwitz and, and killed there. So half the Jews in Hungary, a couple hundred thousand were murdered within that relatively short time. So Hungarian Jews had a shorter Holocaust, but was pretty vicious. And when the war was over, the Hungarian Jews, I'm talking about the full ones, obviously, also got together and said, well, it can't be that we have no reactions whatsoever. And the same idea, well, we can't make them a new day. Uh, we're not going to make a Yom HaShoah. But Chav Sivan, uh, many Hungarian communities were taken at that time. They're also taken at other times, May, June, July, and so forth. But Chav Sivan has such a provenance. And Rabbeinu Tom, and Xeris Tachmatad, and all that. And so the Hungarian Jews, many communities, a number of them, made that Chavs even the day that they mourn for the Holocaust in Hungary. I think that when I was on that date, and I went into that shul, must have been a Hungarian synagogue, and the bells, and some of the other Hasidim with Hungarian antecedents, you know, observed this, and that's probably what we saw. They were thinking about the, the show of the Holocaust hit their parents, grandparents, and all that, not that long ago. So here we have a day which is a, uh, a day that deserves to be more known than it is, I would advise anybody who's interested in this subject to go online and look up the Martyrs of Blois, Blois as you call it, or if you wish, the uh, the massacres of 1648-1649. The Yvain Mitzul has been published many times, the book about uh, the Cossack massacres. Uh, it's very good if you can handle it. It's written very clearly. It has been translated in English uh, by Nathan Hanover from 1651, I'm not sure. I admit sometimes it's called Deep Mud or something like that. And uh, I'm sure it's online. There's no question in my mind that if you know where to look, there must be some translation of it online because it's, uh, you know, it lends itself to easily being, being uh, translated. Here, I just went on Google. It's called The Abyss of Despair. The Abyss of Despair. It's not so hard to, and I don't know how good a translation, but it's, it's hard to mess one up like this because it's written very, very uh, well. So, uh, I think, I think, I could be wrong, I think there was like a conservative rabbi back around 1950 who did it for his dissertation to translate it, but it wasn't a bad job. You know, the Hebrew's better, as always, but the English is just fine, and perhaps we'd be interested to find out what happened to our ancestors uh, when the Jewish people as a whole tried to do this with the Holocaust, politics got involved. The Chazanish famously said, we shouldn't not make a Yom HaShoah, it's like a Zionist thing, it's a secular thing. I hear where he's coming from, but on the other hand, it didn't answer the the desire of so many that we want someday on the calendar to recognize what happened to our people and what to our parents, our grandparents. And uh, in my lifetime, there's been like a silent change, and that's why you see that when I was a kid, when you went to Shul and Tisha B'Av, all they did was kinos for the regular kinos, you know, nothing about the Holocaust, which is fine with me. That's all we ever did. But in the last 20 years... Um, or so, maybe 25 years, 
we've seen that, you know, Rav Schwab composed something and they put it in the art scroll, Kinos, and uh, Rav Weissman had something they put it in the Kinos. You know, you start to see, and from the ground up, a desire of people now to have some ritual expression of mourning for the greatest catastrophe. I mean, the Blois was 30 people, the Holocaust is 6 million. So what's interesting, the Vox Populi, Vox Dei, as they say, the voice of the people, the voice of God, uh, the, the popular feeling is that they want something. I hear where the Chazanich is coming from, obviously. He didn't want it to be like, you know, the Federation, the Associate decided this would be Holocaust Memorial Day. Shabbos, they don't keep. Trev, they keep. But Holocaust, they want to make holy. I mean, I get the idea of not trying to create your own set of separate values that have nothing to do with fundamentalism and nomianism. On the other hand, to do absolutely nothing about the Shoah is also against the Jewish tradition, because usually they like to mourn it. On the other hand, you can play uh, ping pong and say the Shoah is so unique that a, a regular sleepers doesn't cover it, because, you know, here to kill 10,000, 20,000, here to about 6 million. So the arguments go back and forth in this, but within the Ma'arechas Hamachlokas, within the various uh, sets of arguments, uh, the notion of the 20th of Sivan is representing a response by the Jewish people, first led by Rabbeinu Tom, and in 1648 it was uh, the Tosas Yantav, I think, and people like that, people of great stature, makes you understand that usually Jewish people want to have somebody to cry to and cry about when these misfortunes happen. Hopefully these misfortunes will never again happen, but we could do worse than remember and pay tribute. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot to do this prior to Chavsibim, which I think was Sunday, but this is still the week, and perhaps you'll be moved by this to do some reading on the subject, and I think in my personal opinion, reading and, and informing yourself about the subject probably be the, the best tribute you can pay to the Kedoshim. That's it. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.